So if you would, open your Bible as we continue in our study of 1 Peter in what is really one of the most mysterious texts in all of the New Testament. It's a text that has led a lot of people into thinking, especially great scholars, that there are different interpretations of this passage, different interpretations and different meanings throughout really all the centuries. And though it's difficult maybe to understand what the exact meaning of the words are in every single aspect of this passage, and though every word nearly is scrutinized by certain theologians in church history, the text still presented to us by Peter is really a centerpiece of hope. It really is a centerpiece of hope to those who are suffering because it is a Christology, if you know the name of this sermon, a Christology for times of calamity, part two. It's a Christology that is like a centrifugal force reverberating triumph and vindication throughout all of the Christian world. And that was Peter's intent as he wrote this. The theme of this passage revolves around the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And its purpose is to fill the Christian that reads it with so much amazement and so much comfort and so much assurance to remind them that their trials are not in vain. It's a tremendously important portion of Scripture to be understood. Now, last week, if you were with us, we began this study of 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, by first just focusing on what I would call the least disputed section of these verses. And that was truly a joy as we examined the passage together. We looked at this beautiful example of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ to remind us how suffering can also be used by God to bring salvation to others. That was the focus of that time. Though clearly we cannot do anything to ever atone for the sins of those people who persecute us, we can still nevertheless be used by Christ to win them over to heaven as they witness our desire to live out the gospel, though we are suffering and though they are unrighteous towards us. But this week we come to the portion of the text that is more challenging to understand. This Lord's Day, we're going to look at a text that carries with it, as I said, 18 different various interpretations that all attempt to try to help us in our understanding this morning. And these interpretations, just so you know, I'm not going to go through all of them with you, range from the fanatical to the fantastic. All of them being rooted in some very kind of complex theological or grammatical details that would demand a lot of thoroughness and explanation that really surpasses what we usually do. That's why I say this is going to be more of a teaching time today than a preaching time. But I think you're going to find that the extra time we're going to spend on these verses is going to be a very uh, sweet encouragement for all of us as we understand what it is that Peter is aiming at. There are so many different parallels between what Peter's explaining and what we are experiencing in our daily lives, so much so that to not understand these verses would really be a tragedy for us. And so to better understand these things, we need to go back to the days of Noah. We need to go back to a time when there was a man like no other before or after him, a man who strived to live his whole life righteously before a wicked and unbelieving world. And the vindication you're going to find out that Noah received for his righteous suffering is unparalleled in the annuals of history for it involved 
the whole destruction of mankind except for just those that were in his home. And how does that, you might say, relate to Jesus Christ and even more practically to you and to me? Well, just so happens to be you're asking the right question in your mind because that's exactly what we're going to find ourselves going through in this very interesting, very challenging portion of Scripture. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 19 through 22, and just listen as I read. Peter writes, let me back up to verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, let me read on, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, if you heard those words and paid any attention to what I was saying, there were moments there where you were scratching your head. There were moments there where you were thinking to yourself, what is he talking about? And you're in good company because according to some of the greatest minds in the Christian church, this is one of the most difficult passages, if not the most difficult passage in all of the New Testament. Not only difficult in this epistle, but in the whole of the New Testament. I told you last week, Martin Luther said that this is, a, this is a more wonderful text and a darker saying than almost any in the New Testament, so that I do not rightly know what St. Peter means. So if you're not sure, you're in good company. Biblical scholar John Feinberg notes, as one of the approaches to the commentaries on this passage, he is met by a maze of positions. Not only is there variation in understanding of the overall meaning of the passage, but there's also variety in interpretation of almost every element in it. I'm just making sure you know how hard my job is. Uh, Bible commentator R.T. France says, the whole passage has given rise to more monographs, additional notes, and, and other extra notes than almost any other, yet there is probably no more agreement about this exegesis now than there has ever been. So I just say that to you to know this is a Herculean effort, but it's a simple effort, but it takes one of thorough, thorough investigation. So clearly, we're dealing with a portion of Scripture that is at best hard to understand and at worst a Rubik's Cube put together, which means that our time here to make that comment on the outside to study that this morning, that we're going to go into the vast depths, maybe a little deeper than we usually do, because I want you to understand the process, and I want you to understand how I come to the conclusion that we're coming to. There will be times in our group, rare as it is, that we have to deal with some very conflicting issues in biblical interpretation, but it makes us stronger. And yes, it would be wonderful if at the end of the day we could all say that all the matters that make the Bible scholars argue with one another are ultimately solvable, but they're not always solvable. Men and women who understand libraries full of information about etymology and syntax and grammar and biblical theology sometimes just don't see eye to eye in their interpretations. And the reason being, I just want to put this out there for you, many times good and great men and women even rush to produce a work that's not always 
aware in their own mind of the factors that guide them subtly in their biblical interpretation. I want you to think about this even in your own life. Sometimes people are swayed by their denominational leanings as they look at a piece of Scripture because as brilliant as they might be, they have biases, and those biases get in the way. Sometimes people are not aware of the amazing way that they are affected and those principles guide their interpretation. And so like wanting to prove somebody else wrong so that they can be made right also sometimes can be a bad hermeneutical tool. And sometimes even the most noble of people have a blind spot. They just do. A blind spot that doesn't allow them to see certain issues that other people can see. So overall, as I was thinking about this, I think it's to the glory of God that there is so much agreement on essential issues in the church as there are. It's downright breathtaking, really, when you think about it, to see how much scholars from different backgrounds and different theological leanings do agree on the essential weighty matters of the church. But at times, there are those individuals who studied at the same schools and graduated with the same degrees who differ on the same issues of biblical interpretation. I was just dealing with this with a preaching class that I have uh, on Saturdays, and we were going through how do you get to a text? How do you illustrate a text? How do you come to the interpretation of the text? And so these things are on my mind. That's why I told them, as well as I'm telling you, we have to be Bereans, right? We have to study the Word of God. We have to, we're called to study the Scriptures to make sure that these things are true. You might say, if world-class scholars can't agree on what the Bible means, then why should I even try? I would understand that. But the answer is this. Sometimes the most simple folks have the most common sense. Sometimes the most simple of us don't have to be highly educated, also have the Spirit of God guiding us in such a way that what is not clear to others becomes clear to us. Sometimes we must be aware that overly educated people can get lost in the intellectual maze of not being able to see the forest for the trees. And sometimes we must remember that the Bible was written for all of us. The Bible was written for the common man and woman. It was not for the intellectual giants using common language with a common purpose of making us understand God, not misunderstand God. And I think the greatest tool we've been given in the church, and this is like a little class, like I said, is context. Context is one of the most important things. Context is king. In fact, the most three important rules in biblical interpretation are context, context, context. It's kind of like real estate, location, location, location. If we were mathematicians, we would say it this way, one plus two logically equals three. What comes first affects what comes next and ultimately affects what comes at the end. And so the theme of what is being communicated in this process hopefully becomes more and more clear as we go on in this text. So you see, God has written to us with the purpose of making us understand him. He has not written to us to confuse us. He has written to us to help us. And the way all human beings interpret their world, the way we interpret conversations, the way we interpret uh, articles in newspaper or blog postings, everything is through context. That's how we think. It's helpful for us to remember those things as we go through this process together. Now, the apostle Peter was sensitive to those things. He was sensitive so much so that he even spoke about it in his second letter when he was talking about Paul. And he says of the Apostle Paul, there are some things that are hard to understand that he writes. Things that the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures, he said. 
So Peter was probably someone that was set on being not hard to understand. He found Paul sometimes to be hard, therefore his mission is to be clear, since he recognizes some things in Scripture are hard to understand. So that's good for us to remember. His purpose is not to confuse, but to illuminate. Now, with that said, somebody might say, isn't it ironic then that the most hard-to-understand passage in the whole Bible is Peter and what he wrote? And yet, just because of what I said, I believe that if he first, when he first uttered these words, that they weren't hard to understand at all, especially since he was sensitive to being understandable. And so that's comforting to me as well. So what I want to do this morning is I want first to present to you what is considered the most uh, agreed-upon interpretation of 1 Peter 3, 19 through 22. And then once I have done that, we're going to compare and contrast the interpretation, which I consider a very strong case for a different interpretation that isn't as popular today. Again, the general note is it doesn't change anything in your overall understanding of Christ or of the world or of your sin or of theology. But it is helpful to see this different point. And I think it's impossible to be dogmatic about this, no matter what camp you're in. I think it promotes a healthy kind of evaluation among us when we kind of struggle to understand the Scriptures. This is why I'm excited about this, because when it's hard to understand and when I'm grappling to understand, uh, worship really happens. As you do that, you understand yourself to be grappling with trying to get to the meaning because it makes us stronger than the reasons that we believe that the Bible says what it says. So first, let me just present to you what is considered the traditional view, if you're taking notes, just the traditional view. Traditional in the sense that this is what most modern commentators agree upon. Uh, the traditional view says this. First uh, Peter 3, 19 through 22, is speaking of a time between Christ's death and his resurrection, where he went and declared victory over sin to a group of fallen angels who had, during the time of Noah, married human women, and by doing so, ushered forth a cataclysmic chain reaction of such corruption that God had to bring forth the flood to destroy the entire world and then imprison them away from the other demons on the earth. So verse 19 speaks of Christ making proclamation of triumph, the traditional interpretation would say, to those spirits or fallen angels, if you will, who are in prison, and who once had disobeyed God during the times of Noah when he was constructing the ark. Now, some scholars might differ to some of the particulars of that scenario that I just gave you, but that's basically the view that's the most popular. It could be, according to the traditional view, that instead of Christ visiting these spirits between his death and resurrection, that he could have gone to them after his resurrection and before his ascension depending on how you understand the phrase in verse 18, having been made alive in the Spirit. But that's essentially the issue that Peter's driving at, the traditional view would say. Some scholars say that and believe that Christ didn't go down to prison as if it were like the underworld or Hades or hell, because that infers that Christ might be proclaiming the gospel to them and not his victory, giving some people a distorted sense that he's giving them a second chance. But instead, some in this traditional view will say he went up into the seven heavens because some extra biblical material asserts that this is the holding place. The second or third heaven is the holding place of these demon spirits. 
So though through the message he preached is debatable, because we don't know, one wonders if he was preaching to incarcerated spirits in the spirit world, and we don't know maybe the exact place of this prison, because that's debatable, given the option of it either being in the heavens or in hell. The gist of the argument still, and those are debatable issues within the traditional view, that the argument is that this idea that the spirits being referred to here are fallen angels or demons who had disobeyed in the time of Noah. That's the traditional view. Now, you might say, well, where did they get that? Where is that interpretation coming from? Well, go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to read to you what Moses writes here from verses 1 to 8. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. Now, it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, as we're going through this entire section, I'm sure you noticed a reoccurring phrase that was repeated a few times. That is, the sons of God. If you notice that, the sons of God. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, according to the traditional view, they see an interpretation of Genesis 6 that says, in the beginning of biblical history, that there were demons who came to earth after they had fallen from heaven. And these demons, or fallen angels, if you will, were called sons of God. These sons of God, or demons, then proceeded to marry earthly women, as verse 2 describes them as daughters of men, because of the power of their beauty overwhelmed them. So this view goes on to say, that because the nature of this particular sin, what is that? The sin of marrying these daughters of men was so monstrously hideous to God that they were taken away from their residence on earth with the rest of fallen angels who roam and torment mankind and were confined to a place of judgment called prison. So Genesis 6 doesn't speak of this prison, but I'm using 1 Peter 3 as a comparison text as you conclude that prison was their condemnation for marrying these women. So supposedly, the reason for this special kind of judgment 
upon these particular fallen angels is because the children that have been born of these women were impregnated by demons. These children would have been monstrous beings. These children would ultimately have caused such a wicked pollution of the human DNA strand that an attempt it was made to thwart God by declaring that the woman's seed would bruise the head of the serpent. It would destroy that opportunity to happen. Genesis 3.15 speaks of the woman's seed that would bruise the head of the serpent, and this DNA strand would make that thwarted. In other words, the idea, and this is key in the interpretation, the idea of that being Satan sent these demons to impregnate human women so as to corrupt humankind so much so that the coming Messiah through the human race would be stopped. That's the idea. Now, some hold this view, believe that the Nephilim or these giants came out of an unholy union between demons and women, possibly even to the point where the source of the ancient world's fascination with mythological characters came from that. In other words, this really happened, and so therefore when you see all these mythological allusions to giants and creatures like that, you go, oh, actually it was based on something that was really true that happened at this time. So in other words, these creatures did exist in this view, but the storytellers of old found their basis for the tales of these monsters from the fact that they did at one time rule before the flood. All of this, if you're still with me, is being deduced from Genesis 6 and becomes the key that turns the lock for the traditional view of 1 Peter 3, 19 through 22. Now, I would tell you uh, that that's all that there is, but let me give you a couple of other texts. There's two other key texts in the New Testament that give credence, in a sense, to this traditional view. So go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 1, Peter's second letter. uh, In the first chapter, he makes... This, I said 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, not 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. Peter's talking about false prophets, and then he makes this comment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot opposed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men... For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially, let me go on, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. I know this is a lot, but listen. Peter here is addressing false teachers and how God will judge them, and he does so by pointing out some of God's most notable judgments from biblical history. Now, as I read this portion, I'm sure you probably noticed in verse 4 
of 2 Peter 2. The same author, Peter, speaks here of angels who sinned and were cast into hell. Okay? And then he speaks in verse 5 of the entire ancient world that was not spared by the flood, but God preserved Noah. So a preacher of righteousness, and then he goes on to speak of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the defenders of the traditional view would assert that this section of 2 Peter clearly connects to the sin of Genesis 6 with fallen angels. And since the fallen angels spoken of there in verse 4 and directly connected with Noah in verse 5, it ties them together. They also go to another text, go to Jude, the book of Jude book right before the book of Revelation. And here, they use another text to support this view. Jude, verses 6 and 7. Jude, verse 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, again, here we have this reference to angels, but abandoned their proper abode, he, God, has kept in eternal bounds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, when you look at that verse, as you're again soaking this in, the traditional view, according to Jude 6 and 7, says, but here you have another example of sin of fallen angels. Genesis 6 is speaking of these same angels because, though Noah's not mentioned here, you did notice that it happened in the time of Noah because that's alluded to in verse 7. So in the same way, in the same way they indulged, in the same way they indulged in strange flesh, means that in the same way immoral men in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah went sexually after strange flesh of angels, also in the days of Noah, fallen angels had gone sexually after the strange flesh of human women. Do you get that? So that's, that's the connection there. So tying Genesis 6 and 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 all together gives us the true picture, which is happening in 1 Peter 3 according to the traditional view. And if you don't agree with that interpretation, some commentators will argue, then it's most likely because you're just unwilling to accept that something so twisted as angels impregnating women who consequently produce giants is unpalatable to you. In other words, any view of Genesis 6 other than that is probably due to your reluctance of the fact to accept such clear biblical truth because it sounds more like mythology than theology. And I think there's a kernel of truth to that. Maybe there is an aversion to that. Maybe it's like, what? But I think the real issue that underlines any hesitation to accept this traditional view lies more in the defense, listen to this, of biblical inspiration more than pagan superstition. What am I talking about? Why would I say I want to defend biblical inspiration more than pagan superstition? Because, though the reasons I have given you are generally the conclusions that most scholars accept the traditional view, what I haven't told you is where most of these conclusions come from. What ties them together? Now, almost without question, the view of Genesis 6 that speaks of demonic impregnation of human women 
comes from an extra-biblical, non-canonical book called First Enoch. First Enoch. Uh, you're thinking, what's First Enoch? It was funny. I was talking to Lori about this yesterday, and she goes, can we get it? And I go, yeah, we can get it online. It's for free. Is it wrong to read? No, it's not wrong to read. It's just not inspired. It's not inspired. First Enoch is an apocryphal book that was written in the second century before Christ and has widely been read by many in the ancient world at the time. It was well known to the fathers of the second century. It was lost for centuries with the exception of just a few fragments, and it was found in its entirety in a copy in the Ethiopic Bible in 1773 by a man named Bruce. In fact, most scholars would agree that one portion of Jude 14 that we haven't read here uh, is a direct quotation from First Enoch. We can't be certain about that, but that is, the, that is the view. But what we can be certain about is very important, is the influence that First Enoch had on the interpretation that scholars have of Genesis 6. And I say that because the first section of First Enoch depicts an interaction of fallen angels with mankind. I'm going to read it to you. This is very, very ancient, and you've probably never heard it before. Let me give you a sense of First Enoch. The lead demon, Simjaza, compels the other 199 fallen angels to take human wives to beget at child, as child, excuse me, to beget us children, to beget us children. And then it says this. I'm going to give you somewhat of a long quote. And Simaja, who was, excuse me, Simjaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed. And I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual curses, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. They swore that all together and bound themselves by mutual curses upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon and called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual curses upon it. And then he goes on to say this. And they, the human women, became pregnant. And they bore great giants whose height was 3,000 L's who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind, and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink their blood, end quote. So that's an extra-biblical background for Genesis 6 that becomes the hinge upon which the door swings for the interpretation that is called the traditional interpretation. Now, you might say to me, um, wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't biblical scholars sometimes quote unbiblical sources to make their point? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, you, you say to me, uh, Paul in Acts 17, verses 28, quotes some of the Athenian poets. We probably know it very well. When he says, even as some of your own poets have said... We are also his children. Uh, In the book of Titus, he quotes a Greek poet from 6 BC who calls his own people, the the Cretans, as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, Titus 2.12. So we do have inspired writers quoting from extra-biblical sources. But when Paul followed the reasoning on this, when he quotes from unbiblical sources, he's quoting ideas that he uses the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to add to a line of argument. Paul never borrows an entire theology. 
right? He never borrows an entire theology from an outside source. He never devises an entire interpretation based on an apocryphal book. And I bring this all to your attention merely to say that when there seems to be a way to interpret Scripture without leaning on an uncanonical, apocryphal book, then you need to think about it. Is there any way to interpret this by not leaning on a book outside the canon of Scripture it needs to be considered? Now, that being said, there are some very logical, very contextual interpretations of Genesis 6 that we need to consider so that we can throw light back on 1 Peter 3. You with me? Everybody's going like, why did I come today? <laughs> but I, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, in favor of this because I, I love learning this. But I think it's helpful for all of us so that you don't think that studying the Bible is just some simple thing. You have to dig deep and you have to really think. And I know we all do that. That's why we're Bereans. So now go back to Genesis 6. So I can help you understand perhaps a better way to look at the text before we launch back into 1 Peter 3, okay? So again, Genesis 6. First and foremost, I want to address the interpretation that surrounds the idea that fallen angels would ever be called sons of God, okay? Let's just think of that. The name itself, it refers to one who is like God. That's what son of God is. One who is like God. It takes on the characteristics of God. Now, in the New Testament, and you know this very well, it's used to speak of those who have been born of God and now are sons of God. Right? We are the sons of God. We are the children of God because we've been born from above. Romans 8.14 says that all those who have been led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's very familiar to us. That's our New Testament understanding of the word, right? That's what you would think. So we ask ourselves, if ones being referred to here in Genesis 6 are fallen demons, why would they call them sons of God? Most theologians then will take you to Job 1, as seen of heaven. And we've gone over Job many times, but in Job 1, if you remember in the day we studied that book, it says that, Satan, Lucifer, the the Satan, was standing among those who were presenting themselves before God, whom the author of Job calls sons of God. These sons of God are in heaven presenting themselves to the Lord, not just once, but twice, giving an account for their comings and goings. Remember that? And when Satan himself explains to God that he's been roaming back and forth through the earth before he comes before the presence of the Lord, we see that these folks, these sons of God, are usually considered in that context as angels. Okay, They're angels. And that name can be transported to Genesis 6. Sons of God in the Old Testament are usually seen in Job 1 as angels. And so then you might translate that same meaning. You go, oh, then they're angels in, in, in Genesis 6. Sons of God. They're, he, so these are real angels. But be very careful about taking the contextual meaning of one phrase and the contextual meaning of another phrase found in a different book and try to connect them. Do you know what I mean by that? It doesn't, just because the sons of God is used by the writer of Job uh, in a very ancient book doesn't mean that Moses is using the sons of God in the same way in a different context. And sometimes people forget that. So it's called, if you don't know the term, it's called the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture, but you have to go back to context, context, context in every single point. 
So you have to be aware of the unhealthy tendency that some people have to make words in one context mean the same in another context, and that's not always the case. That being said, I think there's a better way to understand sons of God than demons or fallen angels. I'll just put it out there. And this interpretation, by the way, is not my own, but is also attested to by such prominent Old Testament theologians like Kyle and Delich, and also John Murray, who is the Scottish-born Calvinist theologian who taught at Princeton University, and he founded Westminster Theological Seminary, taught for many, many years, famously known for his commentary in the book of Romans. So these people also, and many others, have this view. Sons of God here, they would say, in Genesis 6, is most probably a title given to the descendants of Seth. The descendants of Seth, who contextually have just been written about at the end of chapter 4 and the entirety of Genesis chapter 5. And so beginning with this line of reasoning, we see a new division among men. That being, there's a division that sets them up with either being men who honored God, sons of God, or men who did not. So beginning in Genesis, go back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, uh, 26. Genesis 4, he says, To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and these men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, from this point here in Genesis 4.26 to Seth, going forward, you have what theologians consider a distinguishing mark of the line of Seth. This is the line of Seth, those who call upon the name of the Lord. So when we come to Enoch in verse 24 of, let me see here, chapter 5, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. By the time that we come to Enoch, it speaks of him walking with God like those in the line of Seth, calling upon the name of the Lord. And then later in chapter 5 also, Lamech becomes a father to a man named Noah. And you see in chapter 5, verse 29, Now, he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give the rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed, seeing that he is a righteous man, a godly man. And then, so what you have is Lamech, Enoch, Seth, all being men who have been drawn with this one line of distinction, and that is that they are the kind of men who might be considered sons of God. They belong to God. They have the characteristics like God. So once we start to see this distinction, again, context, 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 as you're going through the book of Genesis, you keep that in mind by the time you come to uh, chapter 6. So verse 1 of chapter 6 explains the human race then began to develop, and that, of course, daughters were born to them. Now, when it came about, the men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, the sons of God, the godly line of Seth, saw these daughters of men, or daughters uh, of men who were not like God, daughters of men, not sons of God, and they desired these daughters of men. The sons of God desired the daughters of men. Because their beauty, they desired to be with these women who were not children of God, women who did not, if you will, fear God, And they took for themselves these women as wives without discrimination concerning who they were before God. The sons of God took the daughters of men. Totally driven by flesh. 
totally driven by not godly character, but by sensuality. And therefore, if you're with me, the sin that's being referred to here, truthfully, the sin that Israel battled for its entire existence over and over in its history was the sin of being unequally yoked. The sin of being unequally yoked. Mankind has never fully understood the ramifications of such a pervasive sin as marrying those who do not love God, deciding to raise a family of those who have two parents who are split as to their love for the Creator, children who are exposed from the very beginning to unbelief and disobedience. Now, I know clearly what I'm telling you doesn't seem as edgy as demons impregnating humans, but it fits the context very well. It's also important to note that rabbinic literature is unanimous of seeing sons of God as human beings. Sons of God are human beings. So you could look at different, I have different uh, notations here. The Babylon, uh, Babylonian Talmud says the sons of God to be the men at the time of the flood. So this view has wide acceptance now. And what I think shows us this grievous nature of sin within marriage that so pains the heart of our Lord is when ungodly women, or it could be an ungodly man, marry into either a godly man or a godly woman's life. To allow the sons of God to impregnate the daughters of men as they chose is the sin. Now, if you're thinking, you might sit there and say, well, what about the giants? Where, what, what happened with the giants? Uh, well, the Nephilim were not offspring from the sons of God and the daughters of men. This is the proposal. If you look once again at verse 4, it says that they were on the earth in those days. They were on the earth in those days. Which days? The days when the sons of God came in the daughters of men. They weren't children, but it merely says that they were both before and after these things occurred. They were on the earth. And by the way, Nephilim means fallen one. It doesn't necessarily mean giant. Men of renown. Uh, the idea that they were giants is derived from, if you're taking notes, Numbers 13, 32 through 33, where they said that they were seen of men of great size, men who made the spies feel like grasshoppers. Do you remember that? So they were, of course, men like Goliath, who were known as giants. That was true. But Genesis 6 also gives us a clue to their identity, and I gave it away in verse 4. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. These men of renown, these, these men of greatness, that's what I think was giant about them. It was not their strength, it was not their size, it was, it was their renown, the kind of men they were. And so these are not unholy offspring, follow me, who existed at the time, probably men who led others to fall as their name suggests. Let me read this again. These are not unholy offspring, but men who existed at that time, these men of renown, probably men who led others to fall as their name suggests. So if you take, I've got five more minutes, if you take this view of the sons of God, then also we are more comfortable with the idea of verse 5 that says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great. He saw that the wickedness of man was great. It doesn't say he saw the wickedness of demons. It didn't say not fallen angels, even that every intent and thought of the heart of man was continually evil. Verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and birds of the sky, for I am sorry I have made them men, not fallen angels. 
So again, the context fits very, very nicely here in this understanding. Understanding that the ultimate reason that the flood came, the destruction of the entire human race was because those who aligned themselves with God, who were like God, sons of God, had chosen because of their fleshy desires to marry those women who did not love God, who did not fear Yahweh. And thus the moral corruption of the world began. That's why it started. Not because demons had relationship with human women, but because the lust that began so innocently in that little phrase, she's so beautiful, look at her, began to unwind the entire world, the moral cancer of humankind. And once that core of fidelity towards God was shaken, then came more sin and more sin and more sin and violence and moral depravity and the whole ball of wax just explodes. It's not as satisfying an interpretation if you are into the Lord of the Rings, I understand. But it is what I believe is the right interpretation and it serves the context and that's what concerns us today. Context is king. Context, context, context. So if Genesis 6 doesn't refer to fallen angels, but fallen men, then what does that do to our interpretation of 1 Peter 3? I'll tell you next time I preach. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that was, I was given. Thank you for this opportunity to explore this great piece of biblical literature and truth and Father, guide us in this journey as we think through. What is the truth? What does your word teach? We all know what is clear is what is most important, and what is clear is that our Savior suffered, and we are to prepare ourselves to suffer as well because he suffered for the entire world as we suffer with the unrighteous world around us in our offices, in our homes, and in the world at large. Give us that assurance first and foremost as we dive through the details of the rest that is to come. Bless us today, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because we have been bought with a price from our Savior Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.